Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa. Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Um, I thought this evening just to, um, I just let the mind wander a bit really about um, this whole business of goodwill um, since it's Christmas. Um, so this was, if you remember, the, uh, the message over the manger, wasn't it? Goodwill to all, to all men, the meaning of course all humans. And uh, I'm sure you noticed my little sign on the gate. <laughs> I've extended it to all beings, <laughs> with the hope it might affect the uh, the local uh, farmer. So, <laughs> so you can hear that little dog. He's, he keeps it in a in a cage with a, a concrete base, and it's obviously quite unhappy. But what can you do? So, um, goodwill for me really translates the word meta. Although I'm sure you've seen it translated as uh, loving kindness, which gives it its uh, its affective value, you know, its emotional value. Uh, but uh, we have to link that really with uh, the Buddha's teaching about karma, and karma is um, action. I'm using the word technically now, not not your comeuppance, you know, you, you get your karma, uh, but more in the sense of just an action, and an action is driven by the action is 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 a point where the will comes in and uh, <clears throat> and then with the will you have the action and the action of course produces the beginning of a conditioning or reinforces a present conditioning and that's your bhava that's your becoming see? and um, really it's just looking at um, the position that the Buddha puts this whole business of karma into his teachings um, <clears throat> when he was uh, when he went through that liberation process, he came out with what's known as the uh, the three knowledges, the three great understandings he had. The first one was a realization that he was completely purified of all these negative states. Uh, later in his victory verse, he says that he attained this <clears throat> unconditioned uh, consciousness, asankatanchita. But the other two. <clears throat> are related to how he got there. And the first is he saw all his past lives and saw how he arrived at this particular place. And then he was able to perceive beings moving from one realm to another, uh, driven by the same force, by the same karmic force, by their, by their will. And um, what was then a, just a personal law became a universal law for him. And from that, over time, you know, he develops dependence origination, which is the whole psychology of how we uh, create our conditionings. Uh, but also, um, he points to this, um, the whole business of um, ethics. So, <coughs> ethics in its broadest meaning is basically our relationship, our relationship to, um, to each other as human beings, of course. 
uh, to the animal world, uh, to the world of nature, to the mineral world, to use an old uh, medieval way of looking at things. So even rocks and stuff like that we have a relationship with. Um, it might not be a very uh, deeply affectionate one, but we, <laughs> but we have a relationship with, with the physicality of nature. And um, in the Noble Eightfold Path, you see, this, this comes into play because after we've had some insights, this has to translate itself into right attitude. And these attitudes, he names three of them within the, within, um, the Eightfold Path of uh, selfishness to generosity, hatred towards love and cruelty towards compassion. But you can take any negativity and <clears throat> you can state its opposite as where we're moving towards. See? And of course, that's a change in relationship. And that's what we're talking about, a relationship. And this then expresses itself in right speech, right action, and right livelihood. See? So um, this ethics um, is most keenly expressed, you might say, in its little detail in, in the Vinaya for the monks, for the, for the monastic life, the monks and nuns. Because here he's trying to set up an institution, a specific institution, which is to preserve the Dharma, and of course to help people become uh, liberated. And he sees that as extremely important. And um, it's not as though he starts from a position of some ideal as to what the order will be, um, he follows the normal um, customs of the time, which was basically to use whatever cloth was about to create clothing, uh, to live very simply in the forests, making your own little hut out of things, out of wooden leaves, banana leaves and stuff, and um, uh, to eat what was given in a bowl. All these things were, were set. And what it tells us is that here's the basis of a spiritual life. Um, you, you know, you, uh, we need shelter. We need clothing against the elements. So we need food to keep the body healthy. And the fourth one was medicine. And uh, <clears throat> when, you, when you look across the world and you, you see these people who don't have these basic uh, requirements... What, we're actually, what we actually understand from the Buddhist teaching is that they haven't even got the basis for spiritual practice. You see? So in other words, the Buddha's saying that in order to even begin the spiritual practice, you're, you've got to feel safe. You've got to feel safe. If your mind is concerned about where you're going to get your next piece of bread or how you're going to clothe yourself or your children and so on, then it's too... You can't begin this process of, of, of purifying the heart. St. Francis had a, a similar experience when he gave up everything in a very Buddhistic way and sewed together these bits of sackcloth to create his first robe. He thought to go and live with the beggars, actually live in Rome with the beggars. But he found that they were, um, you know, a little immoral. <laughs> Quite happy to thieve, not in the language, of course. Uh, and the whole thing, and it, it, it sort of, um, he had this ideal that, in fact, if you were poor, you were necessarily closer to Jesus, closer to God. But in fact, <laughs> what he found was that they were, you know, robbers and thieves. Probably one or two of them were saintly, but, 
but generally speaking they weren't there weren't a crowd he wanted to mix with and so he left them he went off on his own back to where he where he was brought up started again you might say so um you know it's a time it, uh, uh, during during this time christmas we have this idea of of goodwill uh, to all uh, to all beings and uh we then we then have this this sort of problem about will itself, meaning some sort of choice, and there's a, a, you know in the West we have this idea coming really from Christianity, um, of some sort of free will. Um, the ancients didn't have that sort of concept. Uh, they were, I think, more deterministic. That you know things were already determined, a fate. And that uh, choice was really um, some sort of um, trick that human beings played on themselves because they had choice and therefore had free will. And uh, these days you, you get these, these um, different arguments between those who believe in a deterministic uh, idea of the world and those who believe that we do have some measure of free will. Um, now, in the... In the Buddha's understanding, it's, it's hard to, to talk about uh, this um, complete free will. It, it really stems from the idea of um, the Christian relationship to God. So God has, God has created us out of love. And a love which is determined by him is hardly satisfying. You know, if you, if you could create a dog and program it to love you, then... <laughs> You'd have a hard time thinking that this dog really loves you. I mean, he's already been broken. So the idea, the idea of free love was that a person could actually choose to, uh, to love or deny God um, and that that was the essential dignity of the human being and the essential, um, um, what would you call it, um, the essential... The, the essential um, um, oneness of the human being as opposed to God, you see. So he'd created something which was separate from him and therefore had, this, had to, um, the human being had to find this relationship. Um, in the Buddha's teachings, it's difficult to, to, uh, to see this free will because everything starts from this position of ignorance, from the position of, of a, an, a, we're living under a delusion. And this delusion is driving, is driving us. So its main manifestation is acquisitiveness, you know, which turns into greed and all that sort of stuff. And the reason is that um, in that essential delusion as to who we are, um, uh, there's there's this presumed understanding that we are what we appear to be, so human beings with the body, mind, heart, and so on and so forth. But there is always somewhere in the back of our understanding the problem of death. All meaning to the self is in life. To the self um, that feels itself to be this psychophysical organism, death is death is is uh, meaningless. Because my whole effort is to try and enjoy life and make life meaningful for me. And I might extend that into uh, 
um, some form of relationship that gives my life meaning. So you have a, a, a humanistic approach, which is that my life has meaning when I'm helping others. So uh, sometimes you'll get humanists who are just as um, self-negating, just as giving, just as generous, just as compassionate as anybody who would say they belong to a particular religion. And it gives their life meaning. Um, but even so, um, there is this underlying, shall we say, um, despair because it's all going to come to an end. And it's very difficult to, for somebody who sees death as being the end of everything that they, that they aspire to, everything that, that is meaningful in life, uh, to turn upon death and really look it straight in the face, you see. So there's always this gentle uh, pushing away of it, the denial of death. And um, what the Buddha is saying is that um, this essential delusion as to who we are uh, is, is creating this underlying uh, feeling of disjointedness, of not being actually completely um, at one with nature that we're embedded in. Because animals don't worry about that. Animals, as far as we know anyway, you know, they're just happy to, to live the moment to moment because their minds don't, doesn't, don't, don't really go beyond. They don't have that imaginative capacity to imagine their deaths. Not to say that they don't know when they're actually dying or being killed, <clears throat> but they don't have that existential fever that can descend upon us. So when you consider that we've got this underlying delusion which is trying to make sense of this life, um, then uh, everything is driven by that, by that force. So although on the surface of things, when you walk into uh, Tesco's and you, you think, well, am I going to have uh, you know, choco biscuits or, um, or, or fig biscuits? <laughs> and I think, well, this is choice, this is my... This is a wonderful thing I have in this society of choice. You know, the, the governments keep going about this choice. Uh, but eventually, you tend to choose the one you like, <laughs> the one you've established a, a decent relationship with. So, <laughs> so even though we have this idea of choice, actually, when we go into, when we finally make the choice, and we ask ourselves, well, why did I make that choice? We find it's actually all conditioned, that we've actually got good reasons for doing it, which is, which is another way of saying, uh, you know, I have, uh, that it's not been a free will choice. It's not been something that, it's not as though free will stands somewhere outside my conditioning and is able to make this, this, um, uh, com this, this uh, uh, choice which has nothing to do with the conditioning uh, that, that I have within my psychology. So when it comes to, uh, to the path and we're talking about uh, the way to go, it's like going for a walk, isn't it? You, you set off for a walk and you already have your map. You know where you're going to go. And wherever you come to a fork in the place or wherever you come to a, to a place where you, you don't recognize or something, um, you don't have free will. You, don't have, you look at your map and, and you decide you're going to go this way. Now, you might make a mistake, uh, and, and end up in, in a, drowning in a lake, but we'll leave that one aside. Presumably, <laughs> presumably you can read the maps. And even, even if you do start walking into marshy land, you know you've come the wrong way, so you come back on yourself. So 
The path isn't um, so much one of choice, but one of discernment, isn't it, you see? And if we discern wrongly, if we, if we make the wrong choices, then there are certain things that happen because of that wrong choice, which, and the world mirrors back to us what it is. Now, when we talk about karma, remember, in, in, the, in the sense of that which is leading us to liberation, it's never, it's never something outside us. So, if, for instance, I, I find myself being fired from every job that I happen to get hold of, and, and I keep saying to myself, these people really don't understand me, you know, they, they're absolute fools and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> then, uh, slowly but surely, it might occur to me that maybe I'm the fool and not these people I've been calling the fool all my life. Uh, but until I make that sort of uh, little bit of insight, uh, the world keeps mirroring back to me, you know, exactly what I'm doing. So, uh, but if I were to say that losing my job is my karma, then I'd be slightly off-center, off you see, because my real karma is the conditioning I have inside me, the conditioning which is creating this personality, these relationships, which uh, continually find me, find me dumped. If on the other hand, you know, take, take the opposite, if on the other hand I find myself constantly, uh, you know, in situations which are creating happiness around me and joyfulness around me, um, then again, that's, that's mirroring back to me my relationship to the world. See? So uh, when, we, whenever, when anything happens to us, you see, um, there, there is that business going on. That doesn't mean to say that other people's karma isn't affecting us. I mean, you know, the old adage that, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. <laughs> in, other words, in other words, things happen to us, but it might not be, might not be specifically our fault. It's somebody else is also uh, dumping their stuff on us. And to sometimes distinguish that is very difficult. In fact, the closer the relationship is, the more difficult it is to discern that. So, um, when it comes to this uh, uh, goodwill to all beings, um, <clears throat> we're really always looking at our uh, relationships. That's what it actually means, just what is our relationship. And, uh, you know, when it comes to ecology and the world and all that, um, and we have all these deniers and all that sort of stuff, uh, we might say to ourselves, well, even if it isn't uh, the overheating that's causing this, um, it would be better anyway to think it is, just in case it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> if, if, if it isn't, fine, then, then the world is just changing and it's in its usual patterns. But if it happens to be uh, this business of overheating, then maybe I ought to do something about it. So uh, there was, you see, a meditator here who um, I... Who I asked about uh, ecology and whatnot, is somehow it came up in the conversations that they took two baths a day. And I said, well, isn't that, isn't that a bit ecologically sort of vandalistic? You know? <laughs> and their reply was, well, nobody else is doing anything. So you can see how, um, in this particular case, this person was judging their particular uh, ethical relationship to the to the world by other people and excusing what they obviously thought because of their reply was in fact ecological vandalism (laughs) 
uh, they're excused because nobody else is doing it. See? So, uh, when it comes to ecology and, and the things like that, you see, our, our question is to ourselves, well, what am I doing about it? See? What, am I, what is my responsibility within this particular situation I find myself in? See? So, here, for instance, uh, you know, I, I've gone to all sorts of <laughs> silly extents to try and cut down the amount of fuel we use to heat water. And some of them have been slightly ridiculous. That, uh, that thing you're using now, which I bought, which was meant to be uh, one of these super kettles that would keep water warm, um, turned out to be... I mean, that's why I've got that glove around it, that, that covering, because it was just letting off heat all over the place. Uh, my latest escapade, as you've noticed over the sink, is, uh, is a hand-washing thing. Uh, but actually, it, uh, that water, which comes straight from uh, the well, straight from the um, uh, cold water system, is perfectly drinkable. So if you ever want uh, warm water, then you, know, you, you can take it straight from that. And this allowed me to cut down the heat in the tank itself, which I hope you've all forgiven me for. So that <laughs> is basically just hand hot. See, it's not even that, is it? It's lukewarm. And then, the, which is all you need. You only need lukewarm water. So, I mean, I go back to my experience, um, you know, in the East, where only the rich can have a hot shower. You just, you don't have hot showers. You don't, I mean, most people still, still shower at wells. And it's always cold, always, you know. Mind you, of course, you're in the tropics. But even so. So, uh, one thing that we can, we can look at is, is just, you know, um, what is our relationship to the material world? How much heat do we need? What sort of clothes are we wearing so that we don't, we don't have to have the central heating on it, you know, so high? Um, the food we eat. So you go back to your basics, you see? The food, the shelter, the clothing, you know? I mean, these days with clothes being so cheap, people have sort of quite large wardrobes, you know? I'm... I'm now sort of getting to that age group where I can be like the Monty Python <laughs> sketch where he says, you know, well, in my day, <laughs> you know, we ate leather for breakfast, things like that. But uh, this, whole, this whole explosion of uh, material goods uh, is, you know, means that people don't have a sense of um, kindness towards things. They don't, they don't treasure anything because, well, if you break a cup, you're going to buy another one. You know, but, but there was a time when you broke a cup, you've got to, got to crack around the back of your head because <laughs> that costs money. So it's a case of re-establishing, really, the preciousness of things. And in the Japanese tea ceremony, which I know very little, uh, the part of the conversation is, is um, to appreciate the actual vessels that you're using, which may be cracked and very old. And... There was a lovely tale told by Suzuki, who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, where when, they, when the monks go off and take water with them, they always reserve a bit to bring back, to pour back into the river that flows past the monastery. And it's that sort of relationship that I think we have to re-establish. I have a niece who works um, we're around ecology for schools. She sets up little projects for schools, a charity of such. And, uh, you know, when I was asking about that, her reply to me about people and ecology, people don't care. 
and people don't care. And he, you know, and it's, it's a sadness. And we, we watched a, a, a film that was done by a French um, ecologist. And there was this very, very moving scene where, I think it's in Uganda, um, where the hippos on this lake were being slaughtered uh, by poachers. And all the fish in the, in the lake lived off the hippopotamus poo. That's what they did. They lived. <laughs> That's how the fish lived in the lake. And of course, as they killed these hippos, um, the fish stocks went down. And the man who was looking after it, and he saw that some, uh, a little gang of hippos had disappeared, he starts weeping, he starts crying, because he's so, he's so distraught at the uncaring nature of these poachers <coughs> and the, just the inability of the government or anybody to, to stop the slaughter. So um, <clears throat> it's a case, really, of, of uh, you know, just thinking about our relationship to nature. When it comes to uh, animals, the animal world, you see, it's a similar, a similar sort of thing. And um, it's, very, it's very difficult, really, uh, to find products which don't use, um, uh, use something from animals. Um, and the, the, here, here, I think you can get very sort of tight around things. Although the Buddha... Uh, created, although the Buddha pointed out these rules about not harming living beings, they were never set to us as, as commandments, as thou shalt not. It wasn't, a, it wasn't to do with that. They're training rules, see carpada. And uh, you can't make, you can't make a, um, an absolute law in, in a relative universe <coughs> because depending on time and place, uh, human beings, if they want to stay alive, have to eat animals. Let's eat animals. You know, I'm talking about people in deserts and uh, people in the, uh, up in, in the ice, icy parts of the world. So it's not as though uh, we have to be uh, we tight, you know, particularly tight about that, but it's something that uh, we could uh, think about and just ponder and just look at, and just look at our, uh, you know, the food that we actually eat. The idea of having a vegetarian or two meals during the week uh, seems to be taking on, seems to be catching on. Um, but it's, I think one of the problems is that when we move into that moral area, we become moralistic. So again, it's, it's sort of you know, not being too tight around these things and just working with the situation. So here, myself and, um, and Martin had to make a big decision about Christmas. <laughs> So, as you know, uh, the Trust has made, a, um, has made a commitment to using less animal products if we can, but careful not to name it as veganism, because then that locks you into a particular ism. And that's not really where the Buddha was at. I remember uh, talking to um, a German man who'd come to the monastery, and he was very uptight about Buddhism, you know. He, he just didn't like Buddhismus. He just didn't like this word. He, you know, we should call it Buddha Dhamma because as soon as you, you enter into an ism, it's as though you, you, um, you, you can't... It's as though it becomes set in, in concrete. See? So uh, when we talk about um, you know, not uh, taking 
not being involved in taking life unnecessarily, uh, I think we always have to be careful not to get into that ism business, but take each situation as it comes. So anyway, we decided that it was Christmas and we'd and we would have nut roast and use eggs to bind it. So it's just one of those things. We gave in to that. Um, now, when it comes to uh, human beings, here we have a whole, uh, you know, it becomes very complicated because, uh, you know, we have all sorts of ways of behaving towards each other which are, which are unhealthy and equally as many ways as we can which are healthy. And uh, tomorrow I might, we might go through the, uh, the perfections, as they're called, the parami. Uh, but again, it's, uh, it's recognizing that um, uh, other people are our teachers. That's one really very positive way of looking at it. So when somebody is creating uh, some negativity within us, it's pointing out where, we're, where we may be stuck, where we are actually... Uh, holding on to views and opinions. And, uh, you know, it's a case of really uh, doing that doing that moment-to-moment vipassana. We, we, see, we see vipassana as being something that we, we sit and do as a practice, and that's true, that's not a problem. But to keep that, uh, to keep that awakeness in us, awakeness in us, so that when we meet somebody and they're, and they're pressing buttons, you know, we're right there with, this, with the inner turmoil. And, as it were, not to identify with it. This is the whole point, isn't it, of the practicing vipassana, is to disidentify with what we're experiencing. So when anger comes within me, when I'm sitting and I've got a memory and some anger comes up, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, as it were, just gently pushing it away from me to observe it. And in so doing, I realize it's not me, not mine. But then we, in day life, we tend to forget that. And, and as soon as anger comes up, well, I'm going to be angry, to hell with it. <laughs> but the whole idea, isn't it, is to remain with this sharp awakeness so that as soon as I feel the first stirrings of irritation, I'm right there with it, you see. Now, I can override that. See, this is the point. I can override that with goodwill. And the measure of goodwill could be just a certain openness to the person, just to actually listen to what they're saying without this immediate reaction. And if I'm going to identify with something, they'll let me identify with goodwill. So now here we come to another, this whole business about about the self. The Buddha, um, in his teachings, uh, it's not about getting rid of the self. It's about uh, creating, first of all, a self which is beautiful, a self which is, uh, feels uh, dignified, self-worthy, that has a lot of self-esteem, you see. And it's only when we feel that certainty within us that, it's begin, that we can begin to go deeper and drop the idea of, of what a self might be. But all his teachings, if you, if you go through, it's all about at this ethical level of moving away from negative states towards positive states, from darkness to light, as he would put it. There's some beings moving the other way, he says, but hopefully we're moving the right way, we're <laughs> from darkness to light. And so the whole training, uh, 
that uh, part of the part of the training is the eightfold path is right speech right action right livelihood and what it's doing is it's creating this this beautiful conditioning and when i associate with that when i say well you know i am generous you see uh, then uh, it's creating within me this this sense of of self-esteem when i've forgiven somebody and i feel the relief that comes with that uh, you know I'm, i'm purifying my heart when you're practicing metta and you're saying may i be safe may i be well uh, it doesn't matter whether we believe there's an there's an ultimate i there or not what all we're doing is creating these conditionings uh, which eventually build up to make us feel good about ourselves now when we uh, move into that meditation um, <clears throat> the next the next stage is to is to investigate this sense of i um so it's it's a sort of parallel process the pa- the process of insight and the process of of ethical uh, purity run uh, together you see so if we are if we're very disturbed over something we're going through a patch in our lives which is full of anxiety and anger and all that sort of stuff then it's very difficult to separate from it and even if we keep falling into these habits of getting angry and and all that sort of stuff at least we know that we've fallen into a place where we don't want to stay this is the point we don't want to stay there often people will get themselves into this into this horrible place and and they keep churning at it i remember uh, rob who's our uh, treasurer he he uh, he do, he's um, a solicitor helping people through divorce and whatnot and he remember saying to this man something along the lines of um you'll lose what you want you know you're like you're not going to win this case <laughs> uh and and you're going to spend a lot of money right um so his whole argument was let it be come to an agreement and let it go but he was too caught up in this bitterness and hatred and he was going to go for it even though even though it was actually completely illogical and that's what that's what we tend to do we get ourselves into these um you know these 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 whirlpools of thought you see and and you it's impossible to step out of it for a lot of people they're just caught up in it there was another case just recently um on the radio there of a man who um had been tortured by the japanese on uh, on on that river kwai business really really badly and his heart was just filled with hatred and and just anger it was there undealt with within the within his heart and his first marriage eventually broke up and then later on in in his perhaps late middle age um he's just on a train and he meets somebody um and begins to talk to her and this stuff begins to f- begins to just flow outward and he he gets in touch with all this all this goo all this horrible stuff inside him and for some reason i i can't remember the details he he sees this article where this japanese man who was his torturer has written an article in which he's asking for forgiveness and whatnot so he determines to go and meet him in japan and give him the old what for <laughs> but as soon as the man walks in he immediately this 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 um, uh, japanese man he just goes down on in on his knees and begs him to forgive him and and it's like he can't do anything he, 
like the forgiveness just pours out of his heart and they, and they become good friends. So, uh, in his case, he was very lucky that this, uh, the fellow who, who now regrets bitterly the way he made these other human beings taught, uh, you know, um, um, suffer, uh, actually had the opportunity to tell this, this victim how he felt about it now. If not, this man may very well have been still twisting in the little hell of his own, of his own making, just unable to forgive, unable to forgive. So when we, uh, what our practice is teaching us that all this negativity is not me in the sense that I don't have to do that. I don't have to indulge it. I don't have to associate with it even. I can see it as just another mental state. And even if I'm caught out by it every so often, you know, and I find myself, um, you know, murdering people and stuff like that, <laughs> even so, I can, I, can, I can then remind myself after the act, you know, I, you know, you lost yourself there. There was a there was a loss of myself into that, and if I can bring myself out of that and re-establish this good self, you see, then at least I'm not I'm not justifying the act. A lot of people uh, might justify anger, you know, righteous anger and all that sort of stuff, um, but in Buddhist terms, it's very difficult to justify anger. You can, you can sublimate it, you can turn your anger into doing something, but anger itself, the feeling of anger, you know, the hatred that's involved in it, as soon as you put that out, it's, it's a negativity, it's a negative force, and it'll have its effect in one way or the other, you know. Even if you, even if you get your own way, you'll have got your own way, which may be perfectly just, at the expense of friendship, see, the person might do it just out of, you know, because you've hammered them, because you've <laughs> they're so afraid of you. But that's hardly uh, a good reason for them to do it. So what we're trying to do at the level of self, at the level of, of me feeling I am, I am this, I am that, is moving myself towards this better place. And when I get there, uh, I find myself being more contented, uh, less caught up in these mental states and so on and so forth. And this allows my meditation to go deeper because these are, in our meditation, what we call the hindrances. They're actually stopping us from, from going deeper and seeing where the, where the initial problem lies, you see. So um, this, t- this, this uh, goodwill that we are generally spreading around all over the place at Christmas is something that we also need. Not, it's not only an outward flow, it's an inward flow towards ourselves. And one of the purposes of practicing metta bhavana is to get that feeling of self-worth about ourselves. So even you know, at this, uh, during this, this time, uh, it's, uh, it depends what, how you wish to spend tomorrow, but you might spend some time just reflecting. And... Uh, just you know, just try to guide your thoughts towards those areas where where we where we find ourselves stuck, or where we find uh, where we find uh, certain irritations, etc., etc., certain fears, anxieties, and just see them that actually they're telling us something about ourselves, the situation out there, the person out there, and uh, and and then just to find a way of uh, allowing that original fear, anger, whatever it is, to arise um, 
And as it, as it moves away, as it turns away, you see, to establish the right relationship, see? the right relationship with a situation or with a person and so on. So as we all know, this isn't, uh, this isn't easy work. You've got to keep at it. And uh, even though uh, sometimes you might feel things are going worse, uh, it's, sometimes it feels like that before it gets better. I'm sure you've heard that one before. So, <laughs> so it's a case of really seeing our lives as an ethical process. It's not just this insightful process into impermanence and whatnot. It's actually an ethical process. It's a process of correcting our relationships. And uh, in a sense, that's looking at the third, this middle characteristic of dukkha, of, of suffering. And remember, it always comes down to desire. So this desire is a specific desire. It's not all desire, the desire to meditate, the desire to be liberated. It's not this tanha. This desire is always based on uh, some wrong relationship we have, see, which is a fundamental uh, delusion about who we are. So, um, even when we turn towards uh, things like ultimate things, like death, you know, uh, you know, the Buddha's not shy about sort of hitting nails on their heads, you know, like life is uncertain, death is certain. I mean, that's, you know, like he <laughs> he keeps sort of poking you in the eye to sort of wake you up, and it's being it's being able to turn on that, you see, turn on that certainty. And looking at that fear, because right there, at the very fear of death, we find this self. It's the self, you see, it's this wrong relationship, which is creating that, that initial, that, that deep, that deepest of all fears. So, um, just trying really to uh, make that path quite uh, clear to ourselves that on the one side there's the process of insight, the process of seeing things as they really are, as the Buddha said. And on the other side, it's how it manifests in our daily actions, speech, actions and uh, livelihood. And the one has to mirror the other. And... Um, the way, to, the way to liberation can come through any of those points on the Eightfold Path, um, especially those points about right speech, right action, but especially that right livelihood. Because in our actions, uh, we come across where the self is creating barriers, where the self is not, is not able to extend itself in a fluid way into a situation. Definitions, opinions, views, and all that sort of stuff, you see. Uh, just as a final example of the distinction between um, uh, what you might call a barrier and a, uh, a boundary. See, boundaries are fluid. Now, using that word as a, as a fluid thing is this whole business about opinions and, and, um, and views. So, if we see an opinion as just a a perspective on a particular situation, political, social, etc. If it's just a perspective, we're much more open to accepting that other people have different perspectives. 
And there's an ability there to work with it to, to find a compromise. So in terms of uh, a self which is not so self-seeking, the word compromise is not a dirty word. But as soon as you identify with your opinion, I am, so it's very difficult to find that, to find that bridge. And we see it constantly in places like, you know, the Middle East. See, there's no, uh, there doesn't seem to be a way that, uh, that these two sides can, can even come close to uh, some sort of compromise, some sort of way of understanding each other and giving each other the sense of freedom they want. However, it is Christmas and, uh, <laughs> and we have to spread a bit of goodwill. And uh, this evening in our meta, perhaps we can bring these things to mind, like the Middle East, and, uh, and send out our goodwill. Uh, just as a f- another final thing, uh, some, people <laughs> some people doubt the power of prayer, you know, uh, goodwill, blessings, and that sort of stuff. But there's a woman called Caroline Miss, some of you might, might have heard of, and um, she tells a tale of a uh, car crash in which um, a woman dies, comes out of her body, and as she looks down the line of cars, all these people are, are swearing and getting very angry with her and, and all that sort of stuff. But there's one woman who's praying for her. And what she sees is this energy going up and then coming down upon her. Anyway, as it is, she didn't die and she goes back into the body and all that. But she remembers the number plate of this person and seeks her out and takes her a bunch of flowers. So... <laughs> so uh, even though we might do meta only to, um, uh, you know, to, to help recondition our own hearts towards what is goodwill, um, I don't think we should doubt that it has some force. I'm always bemused, really, because, as you know, uh, we read out these names in the morning, and occasionally somebody will say it really helped, and I, I can't really understand how it did it, <laughs> but they actually, they actually feel it. And there was one occasion, I mean, it's, you know, you can always, if you're, if you're a scientific materialist, obviously it's not going to make sense to you. Uh, but there was one case where somebody was dying and we were offering meta and it so happened they died during that period when we were offering meta, which, is, which I thought was extraordinary. Which means, I suppose, you could translate that as means we killed them. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I, I think of it more positively as helping them uh, move on. <laughs> so anyway, I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be fully liberated by uh, observing these twin, the twin parts of the path of insight and, um, and ethical uh, relationships. Sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.